So we're actually going to be in Ephesians 1, uh, specifically looking at uh, verses 7 through 10. So if you have a Bible handy, go ahead and turn there. That's Ephesians 1, verses 7 through 10. All right. And in case uh, you don't know me, uh, I am Martin. I just volunteer at the youth ministry in the the other building over there. Um, I also uh, work as a public school teacher uh, at a school across town. Um, I teach history, so I, that's, uh, that's who I am, and I'm uh, just going to be teaching today. Um, yeah, so what we'll do is we'll go ahead and we're actually just going to read uh, Ephesians 1, starting in verse 1, all the way up to verse 10. Uh, through verse 10 and uh we're gonna pray and then i've we're just gonna do a little bit of a uh kind of like an outlined look at uh verses one through six i've uh, taught them be those verses before several months ago uh, but they are still good to keep in mind as we move forward uh and then there's going to be a great deal of um historical and cultural background that we're going to get into so do you you know uh, I know it's a bit early in the morning for a history lesson, but that's what I do. So we're going to go ahead and get into that. And it's going to really help us understand uh, what's going on in this section of scripture that we're going to look at. So we're going to go ahead and uh, read, pray, and, and we'll get into it. So <clears throat> here we go. It says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. In him we have redemption, through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself. That in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. So let's go ahead and pray and uh, we'll, we'll get started. Um, Lord Jesus, we thank you for this day. Holy Spirit, please teach us your word. Teach me your word, Lord. And um, I pray that your words would go forth and not mine, Father. I pray that you would help us to, to focus on you to set everything aside and to, to learn from your word. Help us to, to apply these things to our lives when we leave this place, Lord. Holy Spirit, we need you and, and we, we look to you, God. Um, and we thank you. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. <clears throat> okay, so let's go ahead and uh, take a look. So verses one through six, there's a lot in them. Um, 
So we'll start with the first thing. So the book of Ephesians, it was actually in a letter written by this person, Paul. Uh, Paul was one of the apostles or the leaders of the early church. He was a missionary, an evangelist, and a church leader. Um, he has a tremendous backstory that we can really read through in Acts 26, um, Acts chapter 7, and Acts chapter 9, if you're interested in his life. But he was actually a Jewish Pharisee, a Jewish religious leader. If you know anything about the, the Jewish Pharisees from that time period, um, when Jesus was alive and doing his ministry, they hated him. They did not like him whatsoever. Um, and it had a lot to do with the fact that he would call them out frequently. Uh, he would point them out as hypocrites. He would uh, basically kind of point out that they were using the temple and the sacrificial system to make money off of uh, the people of Israel. And he would call them out on it. You know, he, there's accounts of Jesus going into these, to these places and uh, where they're selling these sacrifices and things like that and flipping over tables and, and uh, really just calling out these, these religious leaders who were supposed to be God's representative, representatives to the people, to the world, and um, how they took the house of God and turned it uh, into a place of, of business, a place of merchandise or a den of thieves. And so these people did not like Jesus. And Paul, the guy who wrote the book of Ephesians, he was one of these people. Uh, he was one of the most prominent Pharisees, uh, religious leaders of his time. Um, he studied under a prominent um, or renowned rabbi named Gamaliel. Uh, and he, he was a, a pretty big deal. Um, after Jesus died, he actually was responsible this, this Paul who wrote this book of Ephesians, he was responsible for the arrest and, and sometimes even the, the killing of, of Christians during the first century. Um, he was actually on his way to a place called Damascus to arrest more Christians. Uh, and it was at this point that he actually uh, had an experience where he was struck, struck with blindness um, and Jesus spoke to him asking, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And after this point in Paul's life, he becomes one of the, one of the most influential Christians in human history, uh, helping start and establish or develop a lot of the early church uh, that spread throughout the Roman Empire and later on throughout the world. Um, he actually wrote a huge portion of what we see in the New Testament of the Bible. Um, so he, was a, he became a, a pretty... Uh, big part of God's work um, after he became a Christian, after he, he accepted Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. Um, God used him a lot, mightily. Um, but before that, he was a religious leader. Um, he was one of these Pharisees. And that's, that's kind of his story. Um, he, this letter was written around 59 or 60 AD. Um, and he wrote it to, to these people the title kind of gives us a notion as to where this letter went. When, it, when this book of the Bible was written, when this letter was written, it says, um, you know, in verse 1, after the first line, it says, To the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ. There are actually several theories about to whom this letter was originally written. There are some older copies of this book, some older manuscripts that actually don't say that those two words in Ephesus. It just, sent, it just says, to the saints and faithful in Christ Jesus. So some of the older copies of this letter. Um, but it was, however, this, 
This letter was, however, circulated to all of the churches in the region that was known back then as Asia Minor. Um, and in that, in that region, the city of Ephesus was the most prominent along with their church. So, like I said, there are several theories, right? We do know that this letter was circulated heavily and likely sent to the people uh, in Asia Minor, to the church, to the Christians in Asia Minor. Um, and there are some scholars who believe that this letter was first written originally to this church in the city of Ephesus in Asia Minor. Um, and they liked it so much and they, they looked at the contents of the letter and they felt that it was it would be such a benefit for every Christian everywhere that they went ahead and circulated it. They copied it and sent it throughout the rest of the region. There are other scholars who believe that um, this, this letter is just heavily associated with Ephesus because it was the most prominent uh, city and it, and it had the most prominent uh, part of, of the Christian church in the region. So all we do know for sure is this letter was addressed to Gentiles. A Gentile is a non-Jewish person, and that's largely what we're going to get into. Um, the people, the place that these people were in, the spiritual and the cultural state that they were in when they received these words, this letter from Paul is extremely important because it's going to help us understand how it, how it affects us, how it affects Christians, what it means for us as we live our lives and as we move forward. Um, and we, we definitely need to understand that. So we do know that Ephesus was one of the cities that received this letter, whether they received it first or they received it alongside, along with the other cities throughout Asia Minor. We do know who the audience is. Um, so that much we, we have established. Uh, let's see. So we'll just get into a little bit of, of history. So please uh, uh, stay with me. A little bit of history of the area, Asia Minor where the city of Ephesus is, is located. Um, that area, Asia Minor, was located in the most southwestern part of Asia. We're looking right around Black Sea, Mediterranean Sea area. Um, and it makes up much of modern-day uh, Turkey. So it makes up a huge portion of modern-day Turkey. So in the 2000s BC, right around there, uh, it was known as the Land of the Hittites. When the Greeks came in, uh, in the time after that, it became known as Anatolia. And it was actually under Roman control that this area became known as a part of Asia or Asia Minor. Um, so right around 1250 to 1200 BC, Asia Minor was actually conquered by a group of people called the Sea People. And shortly after that, uh, Greeks from Athens settled along the coastline of this area. Um, the area came under Persian control under Darius I in the 490s BC. And in the 330s, Alexander the Great famously uh, conquered Asia Minor. The area was unstable under the control of these uh, Hellenists after Alexander the Great died. Uh, it was under kind of the Hellenist control and it was very unstable, a lot of war, a lot of infighting. Uh, and it was like that until Rome took over right around 133 uh, BC. While it was under Roman rule, which is the time that, right around the time that this letter was written, so first century AD, this area, Asia Minor, and the city of Ephesus included, was under Roman rule. 
Asia Minor was an established and now stable Roman province where they had systems of governors uh, stationed over them. They had um, a road system established and all of these things. So they established some, some uh, stability there. So under Roman rule, they were stabilized and many of the cities were uh, renovated and improved. These coastal communities, they flourished and Ephesus especially enjoyed great prosperity until the rise of Christianity when earthly advances in the region were neglected in anticipation of the second coming of Christ. So it's really interesting. Under Roman rule, this area experienced a lot of economic growth, a lot of economic uh, flourish, right? Because there's stability. When you have stability, you have good opportunity for your cities and your, your businesses to make a lot of money. Okay. When stability ends, business tends to suffer. So when the Christians came along, this was disrupted. And there's a lesson even in this. It's just a historical look at Christianity. The Christians came in and they disrupted everything. And that's typically what Christianity is like. When it comes in, it disrupts things. Early accounts in the book of Acts speak of these apostles going out and turning the world upside down. That's the reality of our faith. Our faith is not necessarily like a quiet hiding, you know, it's like, yeah, there are elements of that. If you're a Christian in a place where Christianity is illegal, but your faith is a groundbreaking faith. It, it changes lives. It changes areas. It changes. It's changing the world and it did change the world. The reason why Christianity disrupted a lot of this economic growth that they were experiencing was because a, a good part of their economy was uh, dependent on the creation and the sale of carved idols, uh, little gods and goddesses created and modeled after Greek and Roman gods. And they would sell these things. And this was a huge part of their economy. As people became Christian, they stopped worshiping these idols and they started to worship Jesus. And they therefore disrupted everything that was going on. After that, so after Roman rule, um, we see the fall of the Western Roman Empire, 476 AD. Um, the Byzantine Empire or Eastern Rome would gain control after that, but control would fall to the Seljuk Turks in 1068 uh, AD. So the Seljuk Turks would later in 1299 would become part of the vast uh, Ottoman Empire and the Ottoman Empire would collapse right towards the end of World War I and establish what we know today as the Republic of Turkey. So this is the area that we're looking at. These are the people. This is the history. And this isn't even like the, the cultural situation yet. This is just a little bit of history of the area. This is where they are. And, the, and as we see throughout their history, right, with the conquering of Alexander the Great and the establishment of these, these Roman systems, um, the, main, the primary religion of the non-Jewish people there was polytheism. They worshipped gods and goddesses. Um, in the city of Ephesus itself, they had the famed uh, Temple of Artemis. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world because of its architectural uh, genius, right? They had the Temple of Artemis. The uh, Romans know her as Diana, the goddess of fertility, hunting, wild animals, and all of these things. They also had a beautifully uh, crafted library where they had pillars carved after the image of the goddess Sophia. Uh, Sophia is the goddess of wisdom. So th this is the area that, that 
that Paul is preaching to, and these are the people, right? Here's the purpose. Since Paul preached, right, one of Paul's uh, big missions when he was alive and when he was going and preaching the gospel, he was uh, called of God to go and preach the gospel, the message of Christ and him crucified, to non-Jewish people. A lot of the first Christians that, came around, that became Christians were J Jewish people. Jesus was a Jewish man. His disciples were Jewish men. They often taught in synagogues. And actually, in fact, during the first century, Christ Christians weren't really known as Christians. They were known as people of the way. And a lot of outsiders, a lot of these Greeks uh, and Roman people looked at these Christians and they were like, oh, they're just like these, they're, they're another type of Jewish person. It wasn't until later that they started realizing like the Jewish community kind of doesn't like them they, because they follow this Jesus Christ person and they started calling them Christian, right? Cristiano, little Christ, right? Because they're followers of Jesus. So that's the world that we start to see. This, this, this is all kind of uh, coming together. And these Gentiles who lived in this area, Paul is teaching them He's educating them in the things of God because these non-Jewish people, they didn't have the laws of God. They didn't have uh, knowledge of God's promises or, or the, the prophecies or the, the word of salvation that comes from the Old Testament word of God. A lot of them weren't educated in those things. They didn't know any better. A lot of them used to be Diana worshipers or Artemis worshipers. They worshiped Sophia, they worshiped Zeus, they worship all these different um, Greek and Roman gods. And they also believed in philosophy. Asia Minor is home to several philosophers, a couple of guys who debated the concept of existence. They also were home to the, to the famed uh, scholar Herodotus, the father of modern history, or the father of history itself, right? This is what the Greeks believed in. This is what shaped and influenced these Gentiles way of thinking and their way of life. That's why this book is written in such a way that it's explaining everything that a person, that a Christian has when they become a Christian. Because a lot of the people in this area that Paul is trying to teach these things, they didn't know any of this. They weren't made aware. They weren't raised with it like, the, like these, these Jewish Christians who had at least some knowledge of the Old Testament and had some knowledge of a Messiah and understanding. They, they were able to kind of piece together what was being taught. Like, oh, okay, Jesus is this person that's, that's vaguely spoken of in the, the Old Testament, right? These Gentiles were like, we, I used to, you know, I used to worship Diana. I don't know what's going on here, but you know what? I... We, we became Christian. We, hear, we heard this gospel taught. We heard this message of this Christ. And we believe, and here we are now. And these are the people that Paul is reaching. Okay? And I promise you, there's a purpose to all of this. <laughs> Please bear with me. So, <clears throat> so since Paul preached to those Gentiles, right, he addresses them as such. He seems to be explaining the gospel and the blessings and everything we gain in Christ in order to educate them. After this, he explains how we should live in light of all we have in Christ. Gentiles were seen as morally and ceremonially unclean people. If you know anything about the Old Testament and the Jewish people in ancient times, they had a lot of laws. They had Cleanly, laws of cleanliness, so things that occurred naturally if uh, 
Like an example, if a woman gave birth, she was uh, considered ceremonially unclean for a period of time before she was allowed to exercise religious uh, ceremonies. Same thing with the Levites. If they uh, came into contact with somebody who suffered from the disease leprosy, they would be considered unclean for X amount of days before they were allowed to resume their religious work. So they, and they also had dietary laws. They couldn't eat certain things. The Greeks, these, these Gentiles, they didn't have those laws. They ate impure things in the eyes of the Jews. They practiced sexual immorality. They worshiped these false idols, these false gods, right? They weren't worshiping the one true God and they believed in philosophy. That was their way of thinking. So to the Jew who God used, who God gave the promises of his word and the laws and everything, they viewed these Gentiles as outsiders. We can gather a lot uh, from chapter two and three in Ephesians, and we actually won't read through it. I just went ahead and looked at some of the verses and I have just short summaries. We see the status of these Gentiles in the light of the word of God and how they may have been viewed by Jewish society. Chapter two in Ephesians verses one through three, it speaks to the state of the spiritual death that these Gentiles and all sinners for that matter were living in prior to our being saved by God. Verses four to 10 explain how God rich in mercy because of his love toward us made us alive with Christ. It was all because of him. Verses eight through 10 explain that we did not earn the grace that lo and love that he gave us were saved by his grace, right? In verses 11 to 12, uh, it speaks of, in chapter two, it speaks of this circumcision, the physical sign of Jewish people that they had in ancient times established by Moses, well, by God through Moses uh, in the Old Testament was all the male Jewish people, all the male Israelites had to be circumcised eight days after they were born. And this was a physical sign that separated the Jewish people from the rest of the world. They would, these Jewish people would call all other nationalities, specifically the Greeks in this area, they would call them the uncircumcised, right? The unset apart, the outsider to God's promises. In short, the Gentiles were spiritual and cultural outsiders to the things of God. There was a system in place where an outsider could become a Jewish person. They call it the, the pros, proselyte uh, system. But the laws and revelations of God showed us that there were a lot of things standing in the way of a lot of these Gentiles coming to the knowledge of the truth of Jesus Christ, to the knowledge of the truth of God and his promises, their own nature, all, our own nature. We're all sinners, right? We needed a savior. They needed a savior. These differences between the Jews and the Gentiles caused tension between the groups, specifically in this area, Asia Minor, there was a lot of Greek influence, like I said. They worship Greek and Roman gods. They practice sinful lifestyles. Their perspective and worldview was shaped by their polytheistic and philosophical beliefs. In Ephesus, like I told you before, they had the, the famed temple of Artemis. Some sources indicate that the way that Artemis or Diana was worshiped during this time was once a year they would hold a festival that would have a lot of drunkenness and sexual immorality take place during that festival in worship to this Diana. And once again, the statue of the goddess Sophia 
speaks volumes to the type of wisdom that these Greeks applied their minds to, philosophy, right? Man-made or man-made man constructs, man-made views of life and existence in the world itself, to justice, to equality, all of it. These are the people that Paul is talking to. People who used to be like this, but now they want to be Christians. Some of us are not too far off from that. For myself, I wasn't necessarily raised a Christian. I knew Christians. My mother was a Christian and she tried to make me read the Bible. So I read the book of Genesis like 48 times before I was, you know, a teenager because every time I tried to start over, I'm like, oh, I'll just start from the beginning. So I like, you'd think I'd have Genesis 1 like memorized by now, but no. But, but not a whole lot, right? Not a whole lot of Christian influence was influencing my thinking or my way of viewing the world. And by extension, my actions and my thoughts and the way I treated people was sinful. So I can relate to this. A lot of these Greeks, a lot of these people in this area, before they came to Christ, they lived a life of complete sin and, and their worldview was crafted by sin and lies. They didn't know any better. So it's hard to, to hold them uh, to that too much. That's the, that's the audience. Some of us can relate. I can relate. So now that we have an idea of who Paul is talking to, now I'm just going to ask you, as we read through this, imagine, and for some of us, it won't be that hard. For me, it won't be that hard, right? Imagine being a Gentile who has now become a Christian, a person whose previous worldview and way of life was shaped by sin and lies. And now this Jewish man is writing a letter to your church and he is telling you that even though you were once an outsider, a spiritually dead and sinful person, you are now redeemed. As we look in verse seven. So let's go ahead and look at this a little bit. Starting in verse one through six, like I told you before, we'll just go over it a little bit because we do need to know what that's communicating. When you look at verse six, it speaks to the blessings that we have been given from God our Father through, you know, of our Lord Jesus Christ. We've been blessed immensely because he loved us. He chose us in him. God had a plan the entire time. He chose us. He had a plan for us. He wanted to save us. And the reason is love. It's not going to make a whole lot of sense because like, and I'll explain further as we get into it. But the reason Jesus chose us, the reason he did everything he did for us, dying on the cross for our sins, the reason he did that was because he loved us. And he doesn't love us the way that we consider love or the, the way that we as humans understand love. He loved us not because we are good to him or because we're good and faithful followers, not because we're worthy of his love. He loves us because that's just who he is. He is love. Therefore, he loves. You didn't earn it and there's nothing you can do to earn it. He just loves you. That's it. 
He loves you. So keep that in mind and understand that because he loves you, he chose you first. Before you've, and there are some in here who aren't even Christians probably. Understand that you are given a choice today. Yeah, you may choose him today, but understand he chose you first. That when he died on that cross, he thought about you specifically. So he chose you and understand that. So verses one through six speak volumes to that love and to the choice that Jesus made for us when he died on that cross and the reasons why he did that. It's because of love. Keep that in mind as we move forward. Verse seven. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. The word redemption in Greek is a palitrosis. It means to be repurchased. It was often uh, used as a legal term throughout the Roman Empire to set a slave free by paying their master and buying them back and giving them their freedom. Or if somebody owed a debt and were a bond servant because of it, somebody would come along and pay to have them set free. In Christ, we have been purchased. And it says we were purchased through his what? What's it say there? Through his what? Blood. His blood. All right. He paid for you with his blood. He was nailed to a Roman cross. And everything leading up to that made him was pretty terrible as well. He did that for you. He did that so that you can be set free. Understand that. My dad told me when I was a boy that nothing in this world is free. Nothing is free. And that's true. This gift of salvation, it's free to us, but somebody had to pay for it. He had to pay for it. Appreciate that. Understand that. Jesus paid for your way, for your chance to have a good relationship with, Jesus, with the Lord. He paid for you to have a shot at making it to heaven. He paid for it with his blood. And he did it, like I said before, because he loved you. You didn't earn it. So he, we have this payment, this, this being bought through his blood, which means the forgiveness of sins. The word forgiveness in Greek is a thesis. It means a release from bondage. It means being released from jail, letting go of something. It means having a remission of penalty. So if you're found guilty, you're convicted, you're, it's, that's it, right? Somebody came along and they erased all of that. You've been pardoned. You've been set free. Your crime has is, been erased. That's what that means. You have, you've gotten this forgiveness of your sin. Sin means evil deed, bad behavior, mistakes, falling short of perfection. That's what sin is. And we all have it. Every person. 
If we look at Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 23, we'll understand it a little bit better. It says, but the, now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, till all and on all who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as propitiation. Another word for that is payment, whom God set forth as payment by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That's what Jesus did. He paid the price so that your bad deeds, so that your imperfections can be passed over. And he did it with his death. Jesus did that for you because he loves you. And as we go on, it says, through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in verse 7, right? So back in Ephesians 1, verse 7. It says, he did it and it was done according to the riches of his grace. It was based on the riches of his grace. The word riches, it means wealth abundance, having a lot of something, more than you really need. Having a plentitude. And the word grace in Greek is charis, and it means goodwill, favor, loving kindness that is not deserved. A favor that is not deserved. It says he did those things. He bought you with his blood. He earned your forgiveness or paid for your forgiveness. And he did it based on the abundance of this undeserved favor that he has for you. And it says in verse eight, which he made this grace, he made it abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence. I love that word abound. It's like so good and it's going to help us, I think. The word abound is perisua in Greek. And it, it means to exceed a fixed number or measure. I want you to just picture like, like a cup or something, right? A cup that you're just pouring water into. Even though it's already filled, you keep pouring because now it's just overflowing. It's saying here that he made us abound, right? That it may abound toward us. He is filling you with his grace so much that you should be overflowing. He has so much of it that every Christian who chooses to walk in, in, in light of the word of God, who chooses to live for Jesus, they are experiencing grace and overflowing abundance of it every day. And he did this in wisdom. It says here, and this is really interesting. This is going to speak volumes to the audience a little bit, to the people that this letter is written to. Wisdom, much like the Greek goddess, the word for wisdom is Sophia. It's the ability to judge correctly and to follow the best course of action 
based on knowledge and understanding. So wisdom in the eyes of these Greek people was a little bit different than what God has, what God deems as wisdom. Let's go ahead and look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 to 25, and we'll get a better, a better view of this. Okay. Speaking of the message of Christ and him crucified, the message of the gospel, right? The idea that we're all sinners, right? We're all terrible people, right? We deserve to go to hell. Jesus came and died and he set us free, right? All we have to do is accept that gift he gave us. That's the gospel. And now we live for him. So that's what this is speaking in regards to in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. When you got it, say got it. All right, good. It says here, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign and Greeks, Gentiles, non-Jewish people, right? They seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So this speaks volumes to the spiritual state that this audience was in. To them, the gospel, it made no sense. To the Jew, which is a whole separate, you know, people and they had their own set of problems, right? But to the Greek, think about where their mindset was. They believed in philosophy, logical reasoning, which is, I'm not bashing any of those things. Like I said, I'm a public school teacher. I teach ancient philosophies. I teach ancient ways of life. To that way of thinking though, the gospel is foolishness because it makes no sense, but recognize that God is not like us. He's above us. His ways are higher than ours. He's more pure than we are. He's more pure in his intent and more pure in his actions than we could ever understand. We're human beings. To the Greek, to these Gentiles who believed in man-made ways of looking at the world and that life and that existence, the gospel is a full-blown challenge to that way of thinking. Because Christ is, Paul right here, he's preaching a Christ who was crucified. A Christ that died for you. That died for us. For reasons that we can't understand. For a love that is too vast and too immeasurable that we can barely, like we can barely fathom it. That's the state of the people that they're in. They're, they're trying to figure this out. And Paul is trying to educate them. He said, 
back in verse, uh, chapter one in Ephesians, right? He did this with wisdom. He set us free. He bought us with his blood. He died on that cross for us. He did it with wisdom. He did it with proper judgment and right action, with knowledge. For the Christian, the gospel is the centerpiece, the beautiful manifestation of one of the wisest and most well thought out works ever done. The way Jesus came and saved us. This is the power of God. And to this, to this way of thinking, to the ways of the world, much like what we have today, we still, we today, right now, us live in a society that still, that still lifts up and admires man-made ways of thinking. We're not so different from this ancient society. I wasn't. I appreciate practical wisdom, man-made ways of thoughts. But that's something we still glorify. That's the culture that we have cultivated here. We appreciate man-made things or self-made ideas or self-made people. Think about that. The people we dub as the men who built America. Rockefeller, Carnegie, right? Businessmen. These are our heroes, right? We admire that. And the reality is when it comes to the gospel, there's no self anything. It's about Jesus and how he saved you. We are not that different, not from these ancient people thousands of years ago. We still use some of the things rooted in ancient Greek philosophy, in ancient Roman ways of thinking, logical reasoning, the scientific method, right? Herodotus, the father of history. We still teach, I teach history, right? That's, those are the attitudes and the mindsets that these people had. And Paul is coming along and he's saying, this is the gospel. It's probably hard to understand, but the reality is you have been bought. You were purchased, not because there's anything good in you, but because Jesus loves you because that's who he is. And now that you have been bought, understand that you are free and that you belong to Jesus. This is a section from a, a sermon done by Charles Spurgeon that I felt was very interesting, a very interesting take on this, this Greek person. And if you're starting to understand, it's really interesting because this, the, the state of the Jewish person at this time receiving the gospel and the state of this Greek or Gentile person, they're kind of like spiritual states of being. And I relate heavily with this Greek or Gentile person, this person who didn't know the things of God before they became a Christian. I didn't really know. I knew that Christians go to church. They read that book that I don't understand. And that was pretty much it. And I knew the, the cross meant that Jesus died, but I didn't really understand what a lot of it meant. These Gentile people who had a heavy Greek influence in their society, they understood even less than that. A lot of them were like, we worship before this, we were, we worship Diana. We worship Sophia. We, we believed in philosophy. We didn't know the things of God. And some of us can relate to that. Their whole 
mind view, their worldview, everything about them was shaped by lies and sin. And I'm here to tell you today, and Paul is writing to these people stating that that doesn't matter anymore. It doesn't matter where you came from. It doesn't even matter what country you're from. That Jesus, like, it doesn't, Jesus didn't really care where somebody was from, even when he was doing his ministry. The Jews hated certain people groups like the you know, Samaritans and, and people of other ethnicities. They hated the Romans. And there's an account in the, in the Gospels where Jesus is commending a Roman centurion for his faith and saying, this centurion, this Roman, this Gentile has more faith than anyone I've seen in all of Israel. If you are a Christian, you should not really care about where you're from. I don't care if you're from Mexico, America, Russia, Africa, North, North Korea. I really don't care. Because in the grand scheme of things, your nationality is not going to carry any weight when you're standing before God. I don't care because Jesus didn't care. There are more important things than where you're from. If you're tracking with me, you're starting to understand that this section of scripture has many implications and applications for how we are living today. I am perfectly aware of the political and social climate that we are in right now. I'm very well aware. We need to look to the word of God and to Christ himself for how to navigate this situation. And don't be afraid of what he says. Don't make excuses for yourself. Before you look anywhere else, look to the word of God. A lot of us are concerned about what side we should choose. Make sure you're on Jesus' side. That's the most important thing. And let him direct you. And don't be afraid if where he's directing you, if it doesn't really make sense to you. Just do what he says. Because this gospel, this message of Christ and him crucified, it, made, it didn't make sense to these Greeks. It was foolishness to them. They're like, this doesn't make sense to us. And Paul's like, it's true. In Christ, you are redeemed. You are bought. And your primary identity is that you belong to him. Look past where you're from. Look past everything that's earthly. And look at the spiritual implications of what the word of God is speaking about your reality and your identity. Let's go ahead and look at a Colossians 3. I'm skipping something real quick. Let's go ahead and look at that because I'm running out of time. Yeah, let's go ahead and look at Colossians chapter 3. We'll start in, let's go ahead and start in verse 1. So I'm calling, sorry, guys in the back, I'm calling an audible a little bit, just skipping some stuff. But yeah, let's go ahead and look at uh, Colossians chapter 3. It should be just a few pages over, starting in verse one. I like, I love this. This is good stuff right here. Okay. When you got it, say got it. All right. Colossians three, verse one. See if we can get it on the screens. Perfect. So yeah, we're going to go ahead and look at this. It says, if then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. 
Set your mind on the things above, not on things on the earth. For you died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. But now you yourselves are to put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds and put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. And pay attention to this. So you're renewed. You're a new person. Your old person, the old you you're, is dead, right? If you're in Christ, that old person is dead now. But look at this. This new person who's in him where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. Your relationship with Jesus is really the only thing that matters in terms of your identity. Yeah, there are earthly things. We all have a background. We all come from different places. And I think that's beautiful. I love studying culture. I love studying history and society. But nothing is more beautiful than the reality that if we are in Christ, our identity is him. Regardless if you're political leaning, regardless of all of it, before anything else, you belong to Jesus. Your relationship with him transcends everything else. And that's difficult to do. Do not just be a product of your environment. Do not just be a product of your cultural or ethnic background. You are more than that. We are more than that. In Christ, you're redeemed. In Christ, you've been set free. And there's other, that's just like one verse that we're kind of cutting open and enjoying, you know, the, 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 the richness of, right? We're also his children. We're also co, you know, inheritors. We get to inherit things from, there's all kinds of stuff in Ephesus. You get to read it, right? We get so much, but I think one of the base and most important things that we get from our relationship with Jesus is this beautiful and wonderful identity that despite where you came from, if you're like me, you came from sin. You came from worldly man-made ideas and ways of life. And he's saying, that's not you anymore. Now you're with me. Everything about you needs to be about me. I know that's hard to do. Doesn't matter if you're Republican or Democrat or whatever, because in the grand scheme of things, when you're standing before God, he's not going to use your ideas to judge you. He's going to use the word of God. You should really consider that. The most important things are the things that last forever. And the Bible tells us that the things that last forever are the souls of men and the word of God.
And this is a beautiful reality that you and I and all of us are one because of our relationship with Jesus. And that if you were this outsider, you're not an outsider anymore. That if before you lived a life of sin and your worldview was crafted by lies, Jesus came and he bought you back. That's what Paul's trying to say to these people. You who were lost, you who were dead in your sins, you Gentiles, you aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers, you're not strangers anymore. Now you're part of, you're part of God's family. Rest in that, celebrate that. Allow that to influence everything about your life, including the way that you treat people. Allow that reality to influence the way you act in situations. Use the word of God. And all right. And I think that's pretty much it. So we'll go ahead and invite. This is terrible. Do we end at 12 or 1230? 12. 12? Oh, okay, good. Yes. All right. That was right. That was terrible. Sorry. Just forget that. Erase that from me. All right. So I'm going to invite the, uh, the worship team to come up, and we're going to go ahead and, and uh, pray out here. <clears throat> but consider those things. I, I realize that identity is a big issue, especially for people in my generation who, one thing I've noticed about a lot of people today is they want to know where to stand. They want to know who they are and where they belong. The truth is your relationship with Jesus, all that's taken care of. If you feel lost and if you feel you don't know who you are or where you should go or what you should be, go to the Lord. He's the one who made you. He's the one that has a purpose for you. When he saved us, he saved us for, for good works. He has work for you. He has a purpose laid out for you in his word. You don't have to be lost anymore. I'm not going to lie to you. It's hard because you have to give up yourself. Like it said in Colossians 3, you have died walking with Christ and being a disciple of Jesus Christ. I love what Dietrich Bonhoeffer said. When Christ calls men to himself, he bids them come and die. This is the reality. If you want to be alive in Christ, you got to die. Die to your old life. Die to your old identity. And find your new one in him. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. If there was anything that was not of you that left my lips, Lord, I pray that you would not even let it leave this room. But your words, the things that you want us to take and live... I pray that we would write them on the tablet of our hearts. Thank you for saving me, Jesus. Things are crazy out there and we don't really understand what to do. I often feel overwhelmed, like many people. Help us to turn to you. Give us wisdom, Jesus. You're all we need.
You are our hope. You are our redeemer and our savior. Thank you for buying us. Thank you that we are yours. We love you, Jesus. We pray these things in your name. Amen.